0: Have you all been fed and watered? Yes. Good. Thank you for coming to um, this seminar and hopefully this series of seminars. Um, if you expect to be in oh, we're going slightly too far ahead. There we are. If you expect to be in the ethical tour of the Bible, you're in the right place. Um, I'm very encouraged that so many of you are here. I was kind of half expecting it to be three men, a dog, and a a plate of fish and chips or something. So Thank you for coming, I really appreciate it. Uh, My name is Malcolm Duncan, Um, I'm doing the activist zone in the mornings here uh, with Carr Beach and I'm I'm going to be preaching in the Big Top on Saturday night. I'm married to Debbie, we have uh, four children, Uh, she's not with us this week because uh, she's a nurse consultant in primary care and is involved in lots of different things. I lead a couple of churches as well as leading a charity and doing a bit of writing. Um, about theology uh, political and social theology so thank you for coming Uh, it's going to be an interesting few days because we're going to try and grapple with some pretty difficult questions uh, some pretty important questions I want to try and allow there are some seats here at the front not many but there are some here at the front if you want them Uh, we're going to try oh somebody's running to the front I feel like an American evangelist I see that hand God bless you you say he needs to. <laughs> uh, we're going to look at some pretty difficult issues, some pretty challenging questions that each of us, I guess, grapple with. And um, here's the outline of how we're going to look at it um, day following day. Uh, today, we're looking at the Old Testament. Tomorrow, we're understanding the biblical, the, the role of biblical prophecy. What is a prophet? What is the prophetic voice? Are you looking for chairs? There are, there's one here. There's about four. Could you put your hand up if there's an empty chair beside you, please? They're all, they've all got empty chairs beside them. Is that helpful? Do you know what? I'm going to pause until everybody's in. There's two right at the front. If we put another one here, we could have the Trinity. <laughs> There's some there. We're going to deal with some pretty difficult issues. Tomorrow, we're going to look at the prophetic voice, prophetic role. How do we understand that? How does that relate to our ethics? Uh, What does that mean for us? How are we a prophetic people in 21st century Britain? Uh, The day after that, we're looking at the whole question of Jesus and how his ethics shape ours. Have we tamed the land of Judah? Have we turned the land of Judah into a kitten of respectability? Uh, we're going to explore some of that together. To what extent does the Sermon on the Mount touch upon us? Is that something that is for nation states? Or is that for individuals? Is that something that should be lived out by society? Or is that a message for the church? Is it the same thing as the Sermon on the Plain, for example? How do we grapple with some of the challenging things that Jesus said? Have we misunderstood some of the ethics that he has um, issued to us in the challenges around divorce, for example? Have we been far more severe than Jesus was? Uh, We'll look at some of that stuff. And then on Saturday, Sunday, day five, I don't know what day it is today. On day five, we want to take a look at Revelation, often understood as a futuristic book. Um, To what extent is it historic? How does it relate to us today? Is Barack Obama the Antichrist, as many suggested and then changed their mind and then said he was, then he wasn't, then he was, then he wasn't? Is that the way we're supposed to read Revelation at all? How do we fit all of that together? So that's the journey that we're going to be on, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it uh, very much. Thank you, as I say, for coming. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate that you could be at many other things, and yet you choose to be here. So I'm, I'm humbled by that as well. And hopefully we'll have a chance to dialogue and, and talk together as well. Shall we pray together? Father, we still our hearts before you, and... Uh, As we examine your word and try to understand how it applies to our lives, we want to live under its authority. I want to live under its authority. I don't want to turn it into my plaything. I don't want to shape my church and then shape the Bible around it. I want to be part of your church, shaped by your word. I pray for Spring Harvest this week, that everything we do will be shaped by Scripture. And that us in this room, as we grapple with the big issues of how to handle the Old Testament today and other parts of Scripture during the week, expand our imaginations, help us to think, help us to see, help us to understand more powerfully what this book means and how it impacts our lives. And give us a spirit of revelation and understanding, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there are still folk trying to get in. So if you've got an empty seat, just raise your hand. There are still lots of empty seats for those folk that you're turning away. Yeah, so those folk that wanted to get in are being sent away. Thank you. Put your hand up again, sorry. There you are. This is all for you. Okay, we're going to start. Keep your hands up as those people settle down. Thank you so much. Um, what is this all about, this question of understanding the ethics of the Bible? How do we, how do, we do that? You've got two hands up. Yeah, two, <laughs> two. <laughs> the Bible is full of ethical dilemmas. It's full of ethical challenges for the follower of Jesus. It was full of ethical challenges for those um, who, exist, who lived with Jesus physically. It was full of ethical challenges for Israel. It was full of ethical challenges um, as it emerged as a canon in the first couple of hundred years uh, after the birth of Christ, which is when the first canon of the Old Testament was formulated. And it's full of ethical dilemmas now. I want to be clear about my starting point, because I have, through the years, as a follower of Jesus, I've been leading local churches for almost 20 years. I've been involved in planting churches for that length of time. And as I'll say in a moment, this book shapes me. It's not something that... um, is an academic exercise. But my starting point is this. Some years ago, 13, 14 years ago, I I believe I had a very personal um, encounter in wrestling with God about the authority of his word. I struggle, I still struggle, with certain aspects of the Old Testament, some of which we'll talk about tonight, today. Um, But in praying about it and asking God to help me to understand those struggles, war, violence, uh, the apparent extreme bloodshed of the conquest um the way in which evangelicals of whom i am one pick and choose the verses that we want to um highlight as relevant to the new to 21st century britain and not um, from the same chapter let alone the same book um i struggled with all of that and still do but i was praying about it for months and months and months and i think it was a very pivotal point in my spiritual journey Because I think at that point I could have either gone in a direction that said um, I'll shape the Bible to say what I want it to say um, or I will allow it to shape me. And I felt that God prompted me to reflect on this simple fact. Jesus never once dismissed the authority of scripture. On many occasions he could have explained it doesn't matter anymore on many situations and dialogues about his own ministry and about his own purpose and why he had come, he could easily have said, oh, that's old test. That's, that's, the, that's the old covenant. Not once did he do it. Not only that, but he never apologized for his father's actions in the Old Testament. There's not a single example of him saying, I'm sorry about the conquest. Or, I'm sorry about the stringency of ceremonial or religious law. Not one. He never did it. And although this will sound incredibly simplistic to you, that is enough for me. If he didn't dismiss it, if he didn't apologize for it, if he didn't explain away his father and instead let the tensions exist in his own ministry, then somehow I have to allow those tensions to exist and work out a way of submitting myself under the authority of this book without just using authority in a bland way. And I guess the ethical dilemma for us is the extent to which we put stuff off and put it at the back of our mind. One of my struggles is, for me as a Christian, as a disciple and a follower of Jesus, I find it almost in the church is the hardest place to have this conversation. Because if you say, well, I struggle with some aspects of the Old Testament... There's a response back that makes you feel as if you're a a, a hateful, vengeful, illiberal, um, amoral person simply because you've said, there's parts of this I struggle with. doesn't mean I don't accept its authority. I want to have this debate with you, my brothers and sisters. I want to be free in this room to say, I don't understand this. Could somebody help me? Rather than have to say that outside of my church family or outside of my religious family, I want to be able to have that debate here. Now, from an ethical perspective, I'm not sure that we are good at creating that kind of loving, investigative, journeying community where we can have that kind of conversation. Does that make sense? But we need to be that kind of community. Some of us find more um, sympathy and comfort and uh, listening in the local pub than we do in our local congregations, but that's quite another thing. Um, How do we handle the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament? In the light of uh, the Old Testament telling us that we should, um, or telling Israel that they should obliterate um, their enemies as they take the land of Canaan. And Jesus saying, "Um, no, I don't want you to do that. I want to bless those who persecute you. Now, you will have heard, as I have many times, lots of people saying, there are no contradictions between the Old and the New Testament. There are. There are. There are contradictions about how to handle um, war. There are contradictions about how to handle conflict. There are contradictions about how to handle money. There are contradictions about how to handle property. There are contradictions about how to handle violence. Now, you either pretend they're not there, or we are honest about them being there, and work out why they are there. The the existence of those contradictions does not negate the importance of the Old Testament. Instead, it charges and challenges us to think it through differently and work out how we relate these two things one to the other which is what we want to try and do uh, today. And that's what it means to take the Bible seriously. I'm going to say something that might be a little controversial to you in terms of ethics. Um, to take the Bible seriously means you couldn't possibly take it all literally. You couldn't possibly take it all literally. Let me give you a very modern example from my own pastoral ministry. Um, one of the churches I lead is called the Chapel at Mortimer West End and God is doing wonderful things with us and we're really grateful to him. We have a new, uh, sung, a new music team leader um, who was leading music about three or four weeks ago and she'd sung this song four or five times. You probably know it. We sang it in Ireland when I got converted Um, Oh, with the high praises of God in our hearts and a two-edged sword in our hand. Do you know that song? We'll press right into the enemy's land, right into Satan's ground. And there's a verse in it that says, We'll bind their kings in chains and fetters. We'll bind their princes in strong irons to execute God's written judgment. March on to glory, sons of Zion. Pause for dramatic effect. I said to her at the end of the service, Lorraine, please don't sing that again. It's not an appropriate song to sing because it was a a mixed meeting. It was believers and unbelievers. It's all about God's judgment. It's all about God's vengeance. It's all about executing God's written judgment on the earth. Jesus didn't even initiate that in the Nazareth Manifesto, for heaven's sake. What are we doing singing about it? And she said to me, which probably some of you are thinking, it's in the Psalms. Why can you not sing it? It's in the Psalms. And my immediate response was, so is, happy is the man that bashes the head of his children off the rocks. Shall we turn that into a chorus? <laughs> because we can't. Even though it's in the Psalms, even though it's poetic, even though it's the inspired word of God, it doesn't mean that we can turn it into a song and sing it. Because it's completely misunderstanding why it was written in the first place. And it's completely misapplying that genre of writing to us. And therefore, if we are going to take the Bible seriously, particularly the Old Testament, and listen to me, there is a real challenge for many of us as evangelicals that we are losing our mooring in Scripture. It's almost Scripture with a little less that's less important The very reformation, the very thing that led to the birth of that sense of grace and encounter with God was the belief that scripture could shape us and challenge us and change us. We cannot lose that sense of who we are. If we do, we will lose ourselves. We won't. The generation after us will. In 30 or 40 or 50 years, our grandchildren will be looking back, those of us that are uh, younger now, will be looking back to us and saying, why did you drift why did you move away from the, the, the power and the shaping influence of both the Old and the New Testament? Why did you allow that to happen? We can't afford to do that. Therefore, we have to approach it with a different hermeneutic. We have to think differently. We have to understand that prophetic literature does not necessarily mean that we are free to preach it, quote it, or live it now. The genre of poetry and wisdom literature, the book of Job, the book of Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs. These are books that are written for specific purposes. The Song of Songs, for example, is not first about Jesus and the church. It is first about sex and happy and fulfilling relationships. Now, when was the last time that somebody preached a series on that? The book of Ecclesiastes has as its central theme the idea that living a life outside of God's purposes and plans is folly. And we need to understand the genre, the reason, the context in which some of these books were written, why they were written, how they were written, by whom they were written, if we are to take them seriously in shaping our ethic. If we don't, we fall into a dreadful trap, and that trap is we will highlight the bits that we like and we'll ignore the bits that we don't. So in trying to grapple and work and come to a place of an ethical understanding of the Old Testament, it's a challenge for all of us. It's a challenge for me as much as for you. But the starting point has to be that this book is inspired. It is God's word to us. It's God's word that shapes us. Right at the beginning of the Decalogue, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, we read, and God spoke these words. In fact, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments in Hebrew spirituality are simply called the Ten Words. That's what the word Decalogue means. It's almost as if these are a summation of moral obligation spoken powerfully into Israel to shape them. And those words are still spoken by God. God. They may have been spoken to Moses uh, on Mount Sinai um, a number of thousands of years ago, but they are still God's spoken words, and we do well to heed them. Those of you that come from an Anglican tradition in a church that hasn't restructured or reordered itself will know that on your, um, in some Anglican churches, on the wall behind you will be on one side the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer, and on the other side, the Ten Commandments. Um, because those are the foundation of the Anglican faith. They're the foundation of much of what we believe in. The great creeds and the Ten Commandments challenge us. What do we do with them? How do we translate them? In the New Testament, it itself is covered by this promise of inspiration from 2 Timothy 3.16 that you know very well, and we'll look at that in a few days, that all of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Some translations, the New English Bible, translates that that as all God-breathed Scripture is useful. Actually, the more faithful translation from Greek is all Scripture is God-breathed. Every word of God that he has spoken matters. And we do well to remember that. But here's the challenge. Um, in understanding it, Peter uh, reminds us that all of God's words are spoken for a purpose. They're spoken for a reason. They do something. Isaiah says the same thing. God's word will never return to him void. It will always accomplish the purpose for which he has sent it. What we need to do is work out the place and the role of the Old Testament in our lives today. We need to um, make sense of these 38 books, um, it says 28 there, it should say 38, these 38 books with different authors and different styles and different cultures and different periods written in different worlds with different ideas and different audiences. How do you do that? (laughs) It's, It's very difficult. And one of the consequences of it being very difficult is, in a good way, it should knock some of our arrogance when we think we are right and everybody else is wrong in how they interpret the Old Testament. Because at the very least, we should be open to the possibility of listening and dialoguing with other people about it. If we want to take the Old Testament seriously, we need to start with a very, very, very uncomfortable question. Do you like that cartoon, by the way? I don't know what it is, is, but I've got an uncomfortable feeling, the two penguins are saying as they see this plant growing. We've got an uncomfortable question to ask ourselves if we want to take the Bible seriously, let alone the Old Testament. How do we approach the Bible? How do we understand its role in our churches and in our lives? Because one thing to say, we want to be biblical. Let's get back to biblical Christianity. Let's get back to the early church. No thanks. I don't want to have the sexual promiscuity of Corinth or the uh, angelic deceptions of Colossians or the legalistic bindings of galatians or the um, intricacies of slavery of philemon i don't want to live in that era i live in this era and i've got to take the whole of scripture seriously and work out what it means for me for scripture to be so important why do we read it so little in gatherings why can we go through whole sermons and not have it read why do we not subject ourselves to the struggle with it why do we not um, make it the center of our dialogue and our debate and our discussions more? Why have we let it drift? Where's the public reading of the Bible gone? We can say that we believe in the authority of Scripture but, and that we want to live in, it, in its ethic, but to do so means that we need to use it more. We need to engage with it more. We need to relate to it more. We need to submit ourselves to it more and be shaped by it. And I'm not sure that we're entirely good at doing that what are the options for understanding the old testament ethically and um, here are some that i'd like to go through with you before we get to anything else and this is a little bit academic but it will be helpful for you in the early church anybody heard of marcion a guy called marcion lived at the end of the second uh, in the second century didn't like the old testament definitely didn't like paul thought paul was a bit severe and a bit of a misogynist So he decided that he would cut out the Old Testament almost entirely, kept a few Psalms. He didn't like Paul's theology, so he got rid of most of that, and he kept a couple of bits of Luke. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount was okay, that was in. Uh, Jesus' ministry was okay, it was in. But the rest pretty much was out. He was um, declared a heretic for doing that in the second century, particularly because he was being um, opposed by two guys, Tertullian being one of them, an early church father, who said, you can't do that. With Scripture. Now, you might say to me, oh, that was 2,000 years ago. One of my best friends, and he is a mentor of mine, was part of uh, writing a book recently, um, which suggested that what we needed to do, and many of you may feel this, a little controversial perhaps for me to say this, was, is to go back to being red-letter Christians. That's just Marcion with new clothes. That's an 1,800-year-old idea reinvented. Let's ignore everything else and focus on the teaching of Jesus. You see, by making that assumption, you automatically think that Jesus himself is not a continuity with the Old Testament. That he is a discontinuity. It's a perfectly legitimate view. It's one I disagree with, but that's what you are saying. Marcion held that view in the second century. Thereafter, there were two main camps in the church around understanding God's word to us that emerged. One was called the Alexandrian Fathers and the other was the Antiochian Fathers, Antioch and Alexandria being the two centers of Christianity. The Alexandrian Fathers, people like Oregon and Clement, um, said this. It's there for you to help if you're interested in it. I can email this to you, by the way. I'll give you my email at some point across the week and I'm happy to send it to you. The the Alexandrian father said this, there are two levels of reading scripture. One is literal and the other is spiritual or allegorical. The most important is the allegorical. It's most important to understand the allegory or the metaphor or the image behind the Old Testament passages and then to interpret those for today. Um, A great example of somebody who believed that was Augustine. Augustine uh, wrote a I have never... If you've ever read any of Augustine's sermons, it's what you read, isn't it? It's what you do before you go to bed. No. Um, he wrote the most remarkable treatise of the, on the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. It's just staggering. Um, in which the Samaritan was uh, Jesus. No, yeah, the Samaritan was Jesus. The donkey is the church. Um, the, the guy that was beat up is the sinner. The hotel has something to do with the church as well. The end the has something to do with the church. I can't remember what. The two coins represent 2,000 years, um, at which point Jesus would return to look after um, those that are sinful himself. Great idea. Not necessarily true. We, that's why the Song of Songs has been primarily interpreted by many evangelicals as first an allegorical book. It's not first an allegorical book. It was first written about love. But the Alexandrian fathers had that view. The second view, which emerged around the same time, was the Antiochian view from um, Antioch, the city of Antioch. Chrysostom, Theodore of Mopsetia and uh, Deodora and others were involved in that. And what they said was completely the other way around. To be ethical, you've got to understand first and foremost the story of the Old Testament. You've got to understand the facts You've got to understand why books were written, where they were written, how they were written, for whom they were written, and then the spiritual understanding of it is secondary. Now, jumping forward a little bit to the Reformation, um, uh, Martin Luther started in Alexandria, in his thinking, was very allegorical, and then moved to Antioch. He started being allegorical about everything and then realised, actually, no, this isn't working, because it's meaning that I have the job of deciding what this means, rather than wrestling with the facts, And he moved from the the Alexandrian view of how to read the Old Testament to the Antiochian view of how to read the Old Testament. Um, And in that way, he tried to hold together the tension of the Old Testament and the New Testament. But for Luther, it was really, really clear the Old Testament was um, subjugated, subordinated to the New Testament. The Old Testament was second. And the more you read his ministry, the older he becomes, the clearer that becomes. He increasingly focuses on the New Testament, referring back to the Old Testament, but not using it as much in any way, shape or form as he did. He said the Old Testament was helpful for shaping our social life, our spiritual lives, um, for helping us understand how to live morally. The the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments were important and that the law was there to point us to the gospel. Now you can pick up and hear Paul, those of you that are into reading theology, can pick up Paul's voice in all of that. But Luther increasingly said, the old somehow is important, but sits under the new. But he never fully articulated what that meant. John Calvin um, was Alexandrian insofar as he saw the old and the New Testament as continually connected. He didn't see Jesus as a break from the Old Testament. For Luther, there was a sense in which the coming of Jesus breaks one covenant, not breaks it, but transforms one covenant into another. Does that make sense? For Calvin, it was very different. He said it was a continuation. It was Calvin that first started language, which has led to the little axioms that you and I know. The old is in the new contained. The new is in the old contained and the old is in the new explained about the relationship between the old and the New Testament. Or the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. This idea that somehow there is a deep connection Calvin picked that up from the Alexandrian fathers. He says that the law was there to guide us. Jesus' words in Matthew 5 about saying, not one jot or tittle of this law will be removed. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Calvin picks up and says, we cannot ignore that. You can't ignore such a powerful word. Jesus said, jot and tittle. Jot is the equivalent of the dot of an eye. Tittle is the equivalent of the crossing of a T. That's those two symbols, a jot and a are two little bits of grammatic grammar in Hebrew. Jesus said, "Every dot on the eyes will be dotted, and every T will be crossed in my coming." That's how seriously he took the Old Testament and its place in the life of Israel. The Anabaptists um, took the Old Testament, and out of it sprung ideas around baptism and pacifism, and many of you will be dispensationalists without knowing it. Um, you may have come from a brethren tradition, you may have come from a charismatic tradition. And dispensationalists believe that the Old Testament was an age of law, a dispensation or an epoch of law. The church now lives in an epoch of grace, and grace replaces law. So those are some of the ways in which we've got to wrestle with this. But for you as much as for me, this cannot be only an academic question. Here's why it's not academic for me. Firstly, it is academic because I teach this book academically teach it in Trinity College in Dublin. I teach it in universities across the world. I try to help people to understand this book. So therefore, there is an academic nature of this subject. But not only is that true, I use this book every day. For 22 years, I followed a form of prayer called Lectio Divina. I rise very early in the morning. If you'd like to join me, you're very welcome. And I chant this book. I read it. I reflect on it. I sing it, small portions of it. In 22 years, I've managed to do some of the psalms some of the Pentateuch, uh, some of the Gospels. And I look forward, if God spares me, to the next 50 years of doing more. Taking small portions of this and saying, shape me by it. Change me through it. Turn me into someone who is more like Jesus as a result of this book. My spiritual life, my pattern for worship, my pattern for prayer, all flows from this book. It is the final authority to shape me. Thirdly, I use it in the communities I lead somebody asked me about six weeks ago what's your main job as my as my pastor and i said to them my job is to help you to take the bible more seriously my job is to help you to relate to what god has said that's it that is the most important job of anyone who leads a local church i use it as a pastor when people come for comfort it is here that they turn When they need support, it's here that they turn. When they need direction, it is this book that I turn to. It's not the latest psychological idea. It's not the latest psychobabble. Although some of that stuff is helpful, it is to this book that I turn them when they're struggling with grief, when they wonder where God is, when they've lost their jobs, when they're trying to work out their sexuality. It's this book that helps them, not me. It's this book. And I live under its authority. So for me, this isn't, it can't just be an academic question. I'm a political and a social activist. Uh, I lead a charity called Church and Community. I debate and uh, liaise with and uh, advise the Conservative Party and the Labour Party at the most senior level, the EU, EU, around issues of uh, human dignity, the UN, around other stuff. It's this book that shapes why I do that. It's what this book says about the poor. It's what this book says about the excluded, about economics, about land, about creation, particularly the Old Testament, that drives me to be a social activist, It's this book that gets me out of bed in the morning because I want to be a voice for people who have no voice. It's not some kind of ethereal idea. It's directly related to the words that are written down for me and you to understand our place in the world. As a humanitarian, it is here that I turn to when I need to defend the human rights of all people. It is the book of scripture that first articulates the dignity of men and women, black and white, it is in this book that you find the foundation for the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. It's the most staggering thing that we've allowed all of that agenda to drift off to somebody else when actually the ethics of the Old Testament give us that as our ground upon which we should be standing with confidence. Somehow the book is approved. Somehow it reaches out to us and challenges us to live in its power. So how do we allow the ethics of the Old Testament to shape us? There are... Anybody in active, was anybody in zones today... Did you do the Wesleyan quadrilateral? Yes. Scripture, uh, church, reason and experience. Did you touch on that? Well, who didn't? This is a little straw poll. Oh, what zone were you in? Oh, ah, okay. Um, well, this is, a, this is a slight expansion of that. Um, When we try to understand our place in the world and how we relate to God, Scripture, tradition, reason, emotion, and experience all link together. I've separated out emotion and experience because they're not necessarily the same thing. And in our reading of the Old Testament, those things um, are important too. Here's what the Old Testament is not for our ethical formation. Number one, it is not a possession of the evangelical church. We do not own this book. We are not the only people that can interpret it. There are others who interpret it powerfully and strongly and remind us of the breadth and the power and the enormity of God's grace and love. Too often we turn the Bible, particularly the Old and the New, the Old Testament, into some kind of evangelical possession, claiming we're the only ones that can understand it. We're the only ones that know it. The best book on Jesus written in the last five years was written by Pope Benedict XVI wrote a book called Jesus of Nazareth. It is superb in its exegesis of who Christ is. Superb- There's nothing in the evangelical world in the last 10 years that goes anywhere near it. If you want to understand the power of the body of the church, the Eastern Orthodox Church has a, the most powerful imagery of understanding the ethics of being part of the body of Christ. Really strong. Um, the Celtic tradition and uh, uh, picks up some of the most Amazing ideas around community and creation and groundedness. This is not ours. The Bible refuses to be owned by evangelicals or Pentecostals and charismatics. It is way bigger than us. Way more powerful than our little boxes into which we try to put it. It's not a rule book. Thank God. The difference between the the, the Bible and the Quran is the Quran is a rule book. If a Muslim learns the Quran, which is a a, a list of rules, if they learn them and obey them, they will be in paradise. The Bible is a mixture of genres. The Old Testament is full of different genres. It's not a rule book. It's a book of poetry and love and emotion, but more than anything, it's a story, a factual story, into which we are invited. We are not free just to learn bits of it. We are invited into it as characters. We're asked to identify with the poor and the strong and the weak and the clever and the foolish. And find our place in it. Thirdly, um, the Bible is not simply timeless truth. It's not an unabridged version of every day with Jesus. And for some of us, that's exactly what we've turned it into. Dear God, speak to me today. And Judas went out and hung himself. (laughs) You couldn't have meant that, Lord. What thou doest, do quickly. It's more than that. We're not free. Here's an example. Some of you will have taken this, and I don't mean to be um, confrontational. The promise to the Philippian jailer that he and his household would be saved is not a universal promise. And to make it a universal promise is to say, just think about it that everybody who is a Christian, their whole family will eventually become Christians just because the Philippian jailer's family became Christians is not a faithful exegesis of that passage. And as a pastor, I pick up the pieces of people who deal with that every day because somebody somewhere said, oh, no, no, because God did it, then he'll do it now. Or because God healed that person in that way, he'll heal you. There is not a given in that. And we need to stop... Assuming that we can take any verse from the Old Testament and apply it to our lives. We can't. The the, the indication of mildew in your uh, old flat doesn't, doesn't mean that you're unholy. The fact that most of us are wearing mixed fabrics here doesn't mean that we should be killed. We talk about wanting to restore Old Testament ethics to our society. Great. Which one of us will cut off the hands of a thief? Are you really suggesting that that's the kind of society you want to live in? No thanks adulterers are murdered because when we say oh we've got to stand on this issue sexuality normally that's exactly what we're saying that we can take any bit of this and say what applies then applies now we can't we've got to do the hard work of trying to work out what this book is and it's not easy we can't simply pick and choose the bits that we want Leviticus 23 is a prime example it's like looking through a gout of cheese looking through the way most of us develop our theologies around Leviticus The bits that we like, we highlight. The bits that we don't, we don't. You say, I would never do such a thing. I'm insulted, Malcolm Duncan, that you would suggest that I pick and choose the Bible. So when was the last time you had as your devotional reading for a month one or two Chronicles, chapters 1 to 8? When was the last time you got up and said, I can't wait to read about all of those genealogies. They get me going. When was the last time you had a devotional thought around gluttony? When was the last time you said, you know what? We need to take this Old Testament seriously. Let's not just challenge homosexuality. Let's challenge um, bias asylum policy. Let's do away with um, interest charged on people for money. Let's return debts to people every 50 years. Let's make sure that we cancel the things that exist so that we can create a fair crack at the whip. Let's leave the corners of our fields unplowed so that the hungry can be fed. Let's find out who the marginalised are and stand up for them. Let's be a voice for the voiceless. Let's stop singing and start doing something. Let's be voices. When was the last time we did that? And yet that's what we are saying if we say we want to live under the authority and the power of the ethics of the Old Testament. We can't pick and choose the bits that we will like and don't like. If we do, we end up, in the words of Karl Barth, creating God in our image. G.K. Chesterton once said, God created man in his image, and ever since we've been trying to return the (laughs) favour. So there aren't any problems with the Old Testament. I hear you yell at me, you're a you're a Sassanac. Your theology is weak. Um, well, according to James 2.10, Romans 6.14, 2 Corinthians 3, 7 and 11, Ephesians 2.15, Romans 10.4, Galatians 3.35, Hebrews 7.11, Hebrews 8.1 and 2, one could legitimately argue that the Old Testament is no longer relevant because it's law and we now live under grace. There's a problem right there. Because according to the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus said, you've heard it said in the law, you shall not kill. I say to you, now look at the direction of travel. If you think hatred toward your brother in your heart, you've committed murder already. Grace does not lower the bar on the Old Testament. It raises it. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus, quoting the Old Testament, I say to you, If you even look at a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. So according to the teaching of Jesus, this book and grace lifts our ability to live according to the law. Leviticus 18.22 challenges homosexuality. Exodus chapter 21 verse 7 um, uh, supports slavery. Exodus chapter 35 verse 2 um, indicates that anyone who breaks the Sabbath should be killed. How many of us would be left? Leviticus chapter 11 verses 7 to 8 talk about cere- ceremonial purity. It's actually about touching the skin of dead animals. Anybody ever played football? Or rugby? Anybody ever touched a pig skin? We have worship services every Sunday in this country, all around Britain with 30, 40 or 50,000 people watching as, as people kick a ball up and down the field. But we say nothing about it. But that's as important in the context of the Old Testament as some of the things that we shout about very strongly. You see, the theology of the Old Testament and ethics for us are inseparably linked. We can't simply break the link and assume that we can get nowhere, uh, that we can carry on as we are. And for that reason, there are some aspects of the Old Testament that we really need to understand if we're going to try and apply its ethics. We need to understand the worldview of the Old Testament throughout its period. What is a worldview? A worldview answers um, four questions. Where we are, who we are, what's gone wrong, and what the answer might be. The Old Testament answers all of those questions for Israel. It's a book for Israel. Where we are, the world is made by one good and loving God, and the whole earth belongs to him. That's the statement. That's the central assertion of the Old Testament. Who are we? We are made in his image, and we are made in relationship and for relationship with him, according to the Old Testament. What's gone wrong? Well, the big question, the answer to that big question in the Old Testament is that human beings have sinned and they live in spiritual and moral disobedience, and that affects every aspect of our lives our our relationships, our moral choices, our community life, our personal life, our political life, and the world in which we live, the creation itself. The very fabric of the earth is changed by that. And what's the answer? The Old Testament sets it out. God has called a people through a man called Abraham who are to demonstrate to us his grace and love and power to transform. They are a paradigm and a type for the world to see. Israel's purpose is to demonstrate to us that God loves us, cares for us, and has a purpose and a plan for us. In a nutshell, that's the story of the Old Testament. And it's why it is so important to us. And therefore, in a sense... The Old Testament tells the story of Israel and we must listen to it to understand our own story. We must see the way they are commanded to live to understand the way we are commanded to live. They are chosen, created in covenant. We are chosen and brought into a covenantal relationship with God. They are delivered out of Egypt and into the land of Canaan. We are delivered out of slavery into the land of victorious Christian living. They have a mission. Their purpose is to transform the world. And to do that, they must be holy people, which is not just being different. Being holy is being dedicated and committed to the purposes of God. It is living in a way that reflects his character. It's not free for you and me to change. Old Testament holiness is the same as New Testament holiness. And New Testament holiness is the same as 21st century holiness. To be holy is to be like God. And the Old Testament tells us what God is like. The reason that we falter with the Old Testament and its ethics is because we've lost sight of so much of that. And we need to read to connect to it again in some way. There's a a thing called the ethical triangle of the Old Testament, which might help you. And it takes three different aspects of being, theological, social, and economic The theological story of the Old Testament is the story of Israel. But it's not just the story of Israel. It's the story of God putting a rescue plan into operation that will transform the world. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 12? I'm not supposed to get excited in lectures. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 12, God took uh, Abraham out one night and said, and 15, Genesis 12 and 15, Abraham, look at the stars. Do you remember that? This is the abbreviated Northern Ireland version. (laughs) How many can you see? And Abraham said, Lots. (laughs) Thank you. Lot or lots? Bum, bum. Oh, you missed it. Never mind. Lots. And God said to him, your descendants will be more numerous than that. I am blessing you. And here's the thing, that you might be a blessing. The call to Israel in the Abrahamic covenant was to be a transforming influence in the world. It was to demonstrate to society that God cared. It was to show them that he was a compassionate, merciful, loving, and gracious God. The story of the whole of the Old Testament is a people that wanted to live in all the the rights of being God's people, but none of the responsibilities. We want you to be our God, not their God. We want you to protect us, not them. We want to love you. We want to keep you for ourselves. We want you to be with us. We don't want you to be with them. And every single prophet of the Old Testament, save Nahum and Jonah, every single prophet was raised to speak into Israel to speak into the people of God, to challenge the people of God every time they walked away from that calling, every time they forgot the wholehearted compassion and mercy of God to transform the world. God raised up another prophet, whether it was a rich man like Isaiah into a rich community or a contemporary of his, a poor man called Micah into his poor community. God repeatedly said, don't forget who you are. Don't forget why I called you. Your ethics flow out of my heart and you are supposed to be changing the world. You're not a holy huddle going off and living in all of my benefits. Now, of course, we as the church would never do that. (laughs) That's the theology of the Old Testament. Holiness matters because God is holy and we are called into it. The economic um, story of the Old Testament is the story of a people given a land. Now, I'll be really controversial. You'll all hate me for this. I don't believe that we can therefore translate the giving of Israel land to Israel in 1948 as a direct fulfillment of what God said. There are hundreds of thousands of brothers and sisters living in Palestine who are Christians whose voices are not heard because we misapply or misinterpret the way the Old Testament has been delivered to us. That's, by the way, not to say I'm a replacement theologian. I'm not. I believe that Israel's purposes will be fulfilled in God's economy and they will be drawn in and he loves them and they are a chosen people. I just don't believe that the Old Testament tells me that the political state of Israel that now exists is the same as God's chosen people. And I actually get a bit offended that Christian right-wing Zionists have taken the ground from me and I'm not allowed to say, well, I think that Israel invading Lebanon is a sinful thing. I think blowing up a school with 1,200 children in it is an unjust, unholy thing, and should—and we should take our stand against such a um, de- painful, painful existence of sin. Some of you are offended at the idea that Israel could ever do anything wrong. And yet the land given to them in the Old Testament is deeply important. It's a fulfillment of a promise to them. It's a fulfillment of who they are, which is why when we read conquest narratives about people being driven out of Canaan, we can begin to make sense of it. And thirdly, it's a social thing. The ethics of the Old Testament are theological, economic, and social. They're about community. This is a community where women are honoured, where children are treated as equals, where men and women are made in the image of God, according to Genesis chapter 1. The Old Testament is replete with evidence that they work way ahead of any other society in terms of their moral and social understanding of community, caring for the poor, welcoming the marginalised, including those that were aliens and had been... uh, uh, set outside the camp as it were and we we have to take that triangle and apply it to us how do we translate a story of a theological people with a land and a social well-being into our context it's not enough to say well we're the church we are the new israel we're not the new people of god are both israel and the church held together as one new body that's what the whole book of ephesians is about From beginning to end, it's the point that Paul is making. One does not replace the other, but one does not negate the other either. So what we've got to do in understanding our ethics of the Old Testament is understand the story. Find, again, the purpose of God in the Old Testament and how it relates to us. I want to explain what I mean by that because it's probably the most important thing that I'm going to say to you today. In understanding the story, we've got to take these 66 books, this authority of God invested in the story of the Old Testament and apply it to our lives. What is the authority of God? It's a word that's bandied about all the time. We have the authoritative word of God. In order to understand what the authority of God's word is, we've got to understand what authority is for us. God's authority um, is um, its not a separate authority in Scripture to the authority of God. God's authority is delegated and placed into the Old Testament. So it's God's authority in this story. It's not this story's secondary authority. That's very important. It's the principle of New Testament um, authority also. The authority of the Father is given to the Son. The authority of the Son, the same authority of the Father, is given to the church. It's given to men and to women. The same authority shared amongst us. Now, to understand how that authority fits with us, we've got to understand what authority is for. How does God use authority? Oh, this is exciting. Even though you might be hot, it's exciting. God use, when we use authority, we control people. We manipulate them. We, we, we put them in their place. We remind them who's boss. Our society's use of authority subjects and controls and manages people. God uses authority, and authority is words in the Old Testament. God uses words, and dead people get up. Things that didn't exist, exist when God uses his authority. People that were bound are set free when God uses authority. People who were in slavery are brought out when God uses authority. and um, Shackles fall off. Enemies are defeated when God uses authority. A promised land is opened up. when Don't get excited when God uses authority. And what we are invited into is that use of authority. Church leader, you have no authority to subject people. You have authority to release people. You have authority to shape them. You have authority to say God is bigger than your issue. God is able to use you. God is able to transform you. When they say, how do you know? You say, read the Old Testament. He did it with David. He did it with Moses. He did it with Abraham. He did it with Israel. He did it with Judah. It's what God does. He raises up people. He did it with Gideon stuck in a wine press. The authority of God releases people. So as we use authority in that way, we can relate to the Old Testament in a completely different but important way. We have got to take it seriously because it is beyond all of these things that we've talked about. It's beyond simply being a historical account. It is the inspired word of God that shapes us. This history changes us. It's not enough to say, well, it happened then. It doesn't matter. Why did it happen? Who did it happen to? How are we shaped by it? It's beyond just a function of blessing us. It's about the story of God's transformation of the whole wide world. And we can't get in on that act unless we understand what that transformation looks like. It's beyond the little book that we've made it. We have made the Bible far too small. The Bible, here's a big thing for me to say. I'm going to say it again when we look at Revelation. The Bible is the reality We are living in the metaphor. I'll say that again. The Bible is the real story. We're in the metaphor. And our job is to discover our place in the real story and allow it to shape us in a powerful, powerful way. Getting to grips with ethics and authority can be a very difficult thing for us. I want to show you something uh, to help you understand that because I want to open up for questions. I have about... So much more I want to say to you, but I'm not going to say it. Uh, we can pick it up. I'll send it to you in the slides. Here's what I want you to consider in terms of understanding the ethics of the Old Testament. Um, imagine for a minute that you are digging. Did anybody read the story of the Staffordshire gold hoard? How amazing is that? This chap whose uh, gold worth 3.4 million pounds, he said, oh, I've looked up and down the field loads of times. I just thought, I'll have a look. He said, and it started to buzz as, his detector and he thought there was a faulty wire he found one bit of gold he thought it was cheap brass so he threw it away and he found another bit and then another bit 1500 pieces of gold the only saxon hoard of gold ever found amazing story imagine you find a shakespearean play never ever discovered by anybody before and it has five acts act one is complete act two is complete act three is complete act four is complete act five is almost complete there's one scene missing, the penultimate one. The last scene is there, and the, the, the one's up to it, but the penultimate scene is missing. How would you put the play on? What would you do to put that play on authentically? Shout at me, what you would do. Yeah, so you'd look for other examples of Shakespeare's work and what he would do, yeah? What else would you do? P- who said that? You'd put it on as a... You wouldn't do this scene in the middle. You'd miss it. Okay. Okay. Oh, who said that? What do you mean, make it up? Ah, you'd improvise it. Okay. If you're going to improvise it, how do you know how to improvise it? You can get it... Ah, who would you get to do this play? And who would you get to act in it? People who'd done it before. Okay. So here's what you would do. All of those things are good possibilities. You would find every other Shakespearean play. If you wanted to do it seriously, you'd find every other Shakespearean play written and you'd read it. You'd understand what he does with plot and character. Yes? You would get to feel the way he writes and how he thinks. You would find the theatre company that had acted every other Shakespearean play. You'd find people who were passionate about Shakespeare, wouldn't you? You would say to them, why are you passionate? What is it about him that you love? What is it about the way he writes that captures your imagination? You would understand every single thing, and then you'd have to improvise. The one thing you would never do is just say, oh, we'll use scene one or scene two from act one over again. What a stupid thing to do. There's a scene missing at the end. Let's borrow one from the beginning. <laughs> That's what we'll do. We'll just take scene two from act one, and we'll, sit, we'll plonk it in at the end and hope nobody notices. The Bible has been written for us in that kind of way. I don't mean it's fictional. Consider this as a possibility. The five-act play that we find ourselves in. Act one is creation. God's purpose in making the world. Act two, Genesis 1 to 3, by the way, creation, or Genesis 1 to 6, depending on how many creation accounts you want. Um, scene, act two is the fall. Do you remember? What's the problem? How did it happen? How do we fix it? Act two is the fall. Act three is God's redemptive purpose. Israel, from Abraham to the end of the Old Testament, every single bit of it is part of that act. God transforming the world. God sending a message to the world. God showing his ethics. God demonstrating what his heart is supposed to be. God helping people to understand how compassionate he is. Act four is Jesus. The coming of the Messiah who lives and walks amongst us. Act 5 starts with the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and the birthing of the church. And the first 40 years are told in this amazing story, we'll get to it later on in the week. This amazing story of transformation and ethical living and social and relational change. But there's a scene missing because it ends at the end of the apostolic year, at the end of the death of Paul really, but John some would say. And then it jumps To the very final scene. And we know what happens in the final scene. Don't get excited. Christ returns. His kingdom is extended. His purposes are accomplished. The word that began in a garden in Genesis 1. Ends with a garden city. In Revelation chapter 22. And get this. The transformation point is the the resurrection in a garden. In John chapter 20. When Jesus appears to Mary as a gardener. There's so much I could say about that. And we don't have time. So we know that this story ends with all things being put right. We know that there will be an end to injustice. We know that there will be an end to pain. We know that sin will be removed. We have been saved from the power of sin. We are being saved from the penalty of sin. Eventually, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. This is God's purpose for us. And then he does the most extraordinary thing. He says, improvise your bit in the play. Your little ordinary life matters. And you like me say, but how do I do it? And we do it by understanding all the other acts. I can't improvise if I don't understand God's creative purposes. I can't improvise if I don't understand the act about the fall. I can't improvise if I don't understand God's place and purpose for Israel. I can't improvise if I don't understand Jesus. I can't improvise if I don't understand the purpose of the church. But if I get those things right, if I start to live them out, I become free to improvise and dance God's grace and glory into the world. And that's what ethics is. (laughs) That's what ethics is. Ethics is not this dull drudgery. Ethics is dancing God's grace into the world. Let me finish with this. No, I'm not. I'll tell you another point. You have to come back during the week. All about you being a wonderful, wonderful demonstration of God's ethics. Any questions? I'm done. I don't know, but I know that I'm called to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and I know that I'm a grafted-in branch, and I know that my salvation was dependent on a Jew dying on a cross for me, and therefore I'm completely committed to standing with God's Israel, Um, but I refuse to be put in a box that says that is the political nation of Israel. I absolutely refuse it. So I don't know. Sin, probably, like the rest of us. I mean, we've had 1,700 years of democracy, and we still have sleaze, so... Any other questions? I wasn't a flippant answer. I genuinely don't know. Any other questions? You're, all look- you're either looking at me googly-eyed or thinking, "Oh, hurry up. <laughs> I'm going to touch on that a little bit tomorrow, actually. If that's, oh, or Not tomorrow, the day after, the, the Jesus day. I'm Honestly, I am. Because the canon wasn't decided, it, it emerged. It was recognized, it wasn't created. And, and helping people to understand that. But giving people the freedom. Martin Luther said he wouldn't read the book of James because it was the book of straw. Giving people the freedom. John Calvin never preached from the Song of Songs and didn't like Revelation. He said it was too complicated and far too many images. So allowing people the freedom to say, actually, it's okay to struggle with this. Canon is Greek for plumb line. So it's the plumb line against which, K-A-N-O-N in English if it's transliterated, it's the plumb line against which we measure our conduct. My massive concern, and I, I'm going to talk to this in day three, is we just create our own canon. And we say we'll, we'll, we'll have a canon, which is the bits that we like. And we're not free to do that because we end up with a very skewed Christianity, I think. Any other questions? Oh, gosh, they're all coming now. One, go ahead, sir. Uh, you had a slide up about Canaan, but you didn't speak to. Oh, I was going to talk to Canaan uh, about Canaan. Um, I'll do it tomorrow. Are you coming back tomorrow? I'll do it tomorrow because that's really important. I have five or six suggestions as to how to handle the conquest or the terror narratives. Um, The terror narratives are the bits of the Old Testament where God seems to say, go and wipe out everybody. Um, How do we handle that? Two more questions because people need to go. There are loads of questions. I should finish earlier tomorrow, then we can have loads of questions. No, you're important. (laughs) You ask your question. It's one of the things that I've been taught talk- is is this idea of progressive revelation, a story that is unfolding. Um but there is a, there is an extent to which the anger and the wrath of God seen in the Old Testament is very uncomfortable for us in the 21st century. We are not free to write it out of our history, though. And sometimes the best answer to that is, I don't know why God did that. I don't know why God is like that. But he, I trust him. Which is, sounds weak, but actually it's a very powerful answer. We can talk about that over the next couple of days, if you like. Um, folks, we're going to need... I'm so sorry. I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll stay out there, and you can ask me as many questions. Is there something else in here now? OK, I'll stay out there. You can ask me whatever questions you want, because I don't have to do anything now until 6 o'clock. So if you want to, Shall we go for a coffee and just continue the conversation? In fact... <laughs> the whole thing does tie together across the week, so if you can come back each afternoon, a quarter past uh, whatever time it is, I really encourage you. I will go and sit in there. If you want to have a coffee with me, let's talk. And uh, and debate some of this stuff.